We are living at a time of unprecedented police repression. Armoured vehicles rolling through parks, issuing five-figure penalties to sunbathing teenagers, while officers on horseback trample young black women unconscious. Protests dutifully coordinated with the police, only to be banned with hours to go. Princesses laying wreaths on bandstands where hours later women will be brutalised by colleagues of the man who murdered the woman they're grieving. Except that none of this is unprecedented at all. I'm Rivka Brown, commissioning editor and reporter for Navarra Media. You're listening to Navarra FM, where today we're looking at the decades-long war on political protest waged by the police. It's a history that may be unfamiliar to a younger generation of leftists, but one remembered in shocking detail in a new book by documentary maker Morag Livingston and criminal defence solicitor Matt Foote. Charged, How the Police Tried to Suppress Protest takes us on a 40-year journey from the Warrington Messenger printer strike of 1983 all the way up to the present day, as the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill threatens to officially empower the police to do what they always have arbitrarily deny the left our right to protest. On the way, we see how the police, government, media and judiciary conspire, often literally, to terrorise protesters and protect officers. We see the police lie compulsively and the media parrot their lies. We see Labour in opposition do nothing, then in power do everything to expand the police state. The story the book tells is both depressing and encouraging. As long as Britain cleaves to the institution of policing, the right to protest will, it seems, always be under threat. But despite decades of relentless repression, the popular desire to take to the streets to defend what we believe in is undimmed. In fact, some would argue it burns brighter than ever. I'm lucky to be joined by Morag and Matt in the Navarra studio. Welcome to you both. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, great to be here. I wanted to start by talking about something that you don't actually mention at all in the book, at least by name, um, which is the Kill the Bill movement. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with it. You talk a little bit about the PCSC bill in the context uh, of your introduction and your conclusion. But I'm wondering, you know, why you decided to write this book now, uh, how the book came about and whether it has anything to do with the kind of sharpened awareness of police power that the Kill the Bill movement sort of reflects? Well, the book kind of came about and its genesis came about from a documentary that I made. Um, and in the research for that, I found out that there was this uh, the number of pages and the police had a handbook that they were using at protest, particularly whopping, which was in that documentary. But the pages had gone missing. So I kind of went on a, a, a hunt for for those. And I found some of them in the parliamentary library. Um, I then took them to a barrister and was talking to her about the importance of them and the impact of them, etc. And she mentioned that um, uh, the Home Secretary of the time, Willie Whitelaw, in 1983, when this handbook was created, was rumoured to have signed it off and the Home Office involvement. And that intrigued me. Um, a lot because the merging of police and um, the the home office and operational issues shouldn't happen. Um, so I then, you know, found some documents that essentially proved that, and also an article that this barrister mentioned that was written by Gareth Pierce, who happens that 
that Matt now um, works with in the, in the same firm. And she, you know, um, predicted um, what would happen next as a result of these draconian powers that had, had come into place. Yeah, so when we, when we started writing this book, it was before the Kill the Bill thing even existed. You know, we didn't write the book because of the Kill the Bill thing. Um, and the idea for the book came before Extinction Rebellion. So there'd actually been quite a long period without mass protest in that way. Um, we, we thought that would be coming, but we, we can't possibly say we predicted what was coming around the corner with Extinction Rebellion and, and uh, the Black Lives Matter and, and, uh, and the Kill the Bill movement. So it, it, it just capped, it, it capped off the book, really, encapsulates the book, um, that the progression of brutal policing over 40 years is is encapsulated by a bill that's going to give them even more powers you know that's where we've ended up as a society but that wasn't that wasn't why we wrote the book it just happens to be that that ends up being a conclusion to the book mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, the reason we wrote the book was to was to show as Morag said that they've been given these paramilitary powers um, secretly uh, behind closed doors and how that led to a a confidence amongst the police that they could not only use them, but they wouldn't be held to account because of the partly because of the way that they've been given those powers secretly by the Home Office in the first place. Yeah, it might be. This is a good point, I think, to talk about the manual because um, you know you choose to begin your history in 1983, um, and but you also indicate that the history of police repression of the right to protest extends far, far back, um, potentially as far back as the inception of the Metropolitan Police. And I mean, you talk about Peterloo and, you know, this is hundreds, not not decades, we're talking like centuries old, um, perhaps even it's inherent to the institution of policing. We can talk about that. But I want to understand why you chose 1983 and um, perhaps the role of this manual that you've talked about, which um, whose full name is the Public Order Manual of Tactical Options and Related Matters. Um, yeah, maybe you can talk about that year, the manual, and why that seems to have marked a shift in how the police police protest. After the 1981 Brixton riots and, um, and around the UK, the government um, instigated a report by Lord Scarman, and he, the result of that report was essentially more community policing, let's build relations with communities, et cetera, et cetera, in order to avoid um, public disorder, if you like. But behind closed doors at the same time, the Thatcher government under Home Secretary Willie Whitelaw were uh, public, uh, behind closed doors, they were developing something different than they were publicly proclaiming. They were publicly supporting the Scarman Report, they were um, accepting of it, encouraging that to happen, um, but they decided that the police needed different powers and they needed a set of rules. And they spent many months developing this document at the instigation of the Home Office, they invited them in, they minuted the meetings, they ran the meetings, they came up with various... Um, uh, approaches and ended up with a 500-page document. And that essentially was a seismic shift in the way that that um, it was authorised to use such things that had been used, you know, possibly before. But now the government was effectively condoning 
um, this approach of um, a series of tactics that were an ever-increasing scale, mm -hmm. you know, all the way up to dogs and use of vehicles against mm -hmm. protesters. So it, the reason we went for 1983 is because that's when the policing um, was formalised, the paramilitary policing started to be formalised. Mm -hmm. You talk uh, about this idea of the paramilitary nature of policing um, and it's it's actually it comes up in a quote from the then director of public prosecutions Keir Starmer um, and how he describes policing after Orgreave but I'm interested I mean you talk a little bit about the official ways in which the police can actually literally call upon the military to support them in certain um, situations something that I didn't know at all um, but can you talk about the kind of uh, influence of military um, methods on the police um, and and the importation, the you know importing of some of some of the me those methods from I think you talk about you know colonial contexts, Hong Kong, um, as well as kind of other British kind of colonies. Uh, yeah, talk about what it means to have a paramilitary police in the UK domestically. Before the manual is 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 um, fully put together, um, they, the police get a, uh, are at a conference where the Hong Kong police come and give a talk and about how the powers they use to clamp down on dissent in, in Hong Kong, which had been quite brutal in the, in the 60s. And the chief constables, it's just the chief constables who are involved in this operation. It's very important to understand. It's not the lower levels of the police at all. They don't even get to see the manual. It's a manual that can only be seen by chief officers. But chief officers are sitting in a room discussing how can we um, better organise ourselves in terms of how we deal with, um, with uh, public, public order situations. And they take a liking to, to the uh, Hong Kong uh, approach of, of just sheer uh, of, of different tactics, the brutal tactics. So what you end up seeing in the manual is quite extraordinary things that I, I don't believe ever would have got through, we don't believe ever would have got through Parliament at all, um, uh, which, are, which we show through some of the protests in the book. But they include the ability to incapacitate protesters and to, to drive at them with vehicles, to, to literally drive at, at, at pace with, with vehicles is extraordinary. And the ability to charge, uh, to charge, charge at people with horses. So these are tactics which are probably not uh, not used in, in in Europe in the same way because they they've not come from that tradition um, and haven't had this formalised thing at the leadership that have secretly been signed off by the Home Office. Do you think there's any coincidence that the introduction of some of these tactics coincides with, as you say, the Brixton and there were also riots in Bristol, you know, that these paramilitary tactics, more familiar to imperial contexts than domestically, coincide with uh, uprisings that are driven by racism, that are driven by, you know, resistance to racism, that like, uh, as soon as basically black Britain start saying they've had enough, uh, the police start to import tactics from the colonies because that's how you police black people. 
Yeah, I definitely think there's a link. I think that you look at the leadership of the police and they are they're all uh, f fairly reactionary white men who <laughs> that the idea of race within the police then was just unheard of uh, there's no there's no black people at all in the senior echelons is pretty much not now and uh, I'm not saying if there was it would make all the difference but there was just they're very conservative reactionary figures who run these things who were prone to make statements uh, around the riots and, and things like that. So I definitely think there's a connection with who they are psychologically and wanting those powers in order to keep people in their place. Mm -hmm. I definitely think that's part of the story. I thought what was interesting also about the manual was that the manual itself, um, you know, there's something interesting about the kind of um, use of uh bureaucracy to to appear like one is standardizing um one's methods holding oneself accountable you know one might argue that there is some um argument for having a manual of police tactics obviously not one that is secret but um having a a manual of police tactics so that we can measure the police against some objective kind of uh, set of standards. So there's an argument for it. However, the manual has been repeatedly updated since its, uh, you know, conception in 1983. So for example, um, you know, well, you talk about three moments at which it was updated in 1987, after the Battle of Orgreave in 1984, uh, in 2004, after the introduction of the Human Rights Act in 1998. Um, okay, so two moments. And so you give a specific example of um, a tactic that has been like revised in those two moments. So you just talked now about the uh, use of truncheons to incapacitate protesters in 1983. So 1983, you can use a truncheon to incapacitate protesters. But then in 1987, you can use a truncheon to uh, administer light blows. Um, and then in 2004, you can only use the minimum force necessary uh, with your truncheon to make arrests or prevent crime. And you're not supposed to use your truncheon punitively, right? So then there's actually a, a, a there is a third update to the manual, actually, which was uh, written in 2018, you say, um, perhaps with Alfie Meadows in mind, the, the student protester who suffered a brain injury in 2010 after being hit by police with a truncheon um, and that says that police officers shouldn't strike at the head with their truncheon okay so we've got this revision this watering down of the or this kind of moderation of the language of the manual but anyone who's been to a political protest in the last few years will tell you that police do use their truncheons and they do use them punitively and indiscriminately you know we've seen quite extreme examples of police using, for example, shields to attack protesters, which is obviously not the same as a truncheon. But you also give the example uh, of uh, horse charges. So, you know, the Metropolitan Police, you talk about being founded 10 years after the Peterloo massacre of 1819. Um, which saw a big horse charge into a massive crowd and killed loads of people. But we still see horse charges today. So if the manuals are being updated, if, you know, institutions are being reformed um, to get rid of certain kind of particularly nefarious or harmful tactics, and yet these tactics are still being used, um, what's the point of having them, um, even if they are public, even if the police are held accountable? You know, can 
is it possible to reform violence out of the police? Or are we just, you know, dealing with an inherently violent institution that will override and ignore whatever rules we apply to it? Because it's not, it's inherently not obeying the rules. It's obeying an authority, which is, you know, we might, we might just, we might debate, but potentially capital, potentially, you know, the status quo of various kinds. But yeah, can you actually reform violence out of the police? I think there's two things there, very, you know, very important questions. One is, do we need to know what the rules are that the police are supposed to abide by? And I think obviously that the secrecy is a massive problem here, that we don't even know what the rules are and Parliament weren't involved and we don't know what the standards are, whether they're applying them or not. Um, and then I think the, the, the second thing is how they, how they apply them um, in terms of um, what we show in the book is that they, they've got these extreme measures that sometimes they use, but they even sometimes go beyond those extreme measures. And, and that's the point you're making, is how can we trust them? And I think there's a, there are lots of echoes in the book. So when um, the description of what happened at Orgreave, where the officers are only supposed to hit people around the body, but they come and hit them around the head, you know, and, there's, and it's on the tape, hit them around the body, but they're actually hitting them around the head, it is very echoes right back to student protests in 2010, where a number of people were hit around the head. And, and that cannot be an accident. You know, it's not, if it was a single case or whatever, it, it's clearly a mindset where the police have been let off the leash. And the question is, why are they let off the leash in these instances? And it's clearly to, in our view, to suppress dissent. I mean, it, 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 I think people reading this book, because the, if you take one protest on its own, it's difficult to make that case. But one of the points of making, putting these protests together is there's always a narrative that follows that says um, the protesters have been violent, the police are the victims. Every single one of these protests. And every single time when you look at it forensically, which the passage of time allows you to do, you can see it's the opposite, that the police have used excessive violence. Um, and if you're doing, if you do that across the board, then there's no doubt that they have a, a I think we've called it an institutional uh, 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 propensity to be to, to undermine dissent or whatever. You know, it, it, it's within their makeup that they're always going to try and keep people in their place. Is the way I would express it in a different way. And I think it also comes down to accountability of the police. You know, the manual was created in secret and the incapacity that you talk about that was in the 83 manual, you know, it was you can incapacitate a protester for being there. You know, there's no context around it except if you're a protester and you are there, then the police can incapacitate you. And if you have created such a manual in such a manner that hasn't gone through Parliament, that, you know, um, Gareth Pierce, the solicitor, has argued that um, change the law behind closed doors, if you do that, then you're setting up a process of well, you can do what you like. And, you know, as Matt said, we've seen instances in the book where, and you said that, that the police went beyond the manual um, on a number of occasions, but still they're not held to account. You know, you've got these rules which are internal and they know of and the Home Office know of, and yet when they do all their internal reports, they're not held to account. So if you're a policeman or woman, you can go beyond that because you're never held to account. There is something about the Kill the Bill movement here for me, which is that attempts to hold the police to account through the official channels 
almost always fail, you know? And we've seen that even in the recent kind of um, death of Sarah Everard, well, murder of Sarah Everard by Wayne Cousins and the the kind of two different responses that emerged in the form of the Kill the Bill movement and Reclaim These Streets. Reclaim These Streets being a group of women who attempted to um, kind of work with the police to hold a protest and when they couldn't, they uh, attempted to raise money to pay the fixed penalty notices of people who went and, um, you know, they've attempted to basically go through the official channels to hold the police accountable for what happened on Clapham common um whereas kill the bill has abandoned any kind of uh faith in uh legislative change as in you know attempting to make change by you know through the legal system or through you know lobbying mps or through kind of uh institutional change and just taken to the streets and i'm wondering whether um it feels like to you, I mean, you're a lawyer, so maybe this is a bit of like a loaded question, but like there is any way of actually holding the police to account when the judiciary, you know, the judges, you, you talk about judges in this book who are literally mates with former home secretaries. <laughs> and, you know, we still do have, it's going to be many years before uh, our current judiciary ages out of their profession um, and perhaps like a younger generation with slightly different politics replaces them or maybe the institution itself is what kind of makes people conservative but I'm just wondering whether there is any way of holding the police to account through you know through inquiries and through kind of reporting and through you know official channels I suppose there's so many questions to be asked and you can't raise them until you have the information right and you know in this in this book that's hopefully what we're trying to do is that we're putting that together in terms of personal stories etc etc um because on the whole, you know, we believe that people need to know this history, especially younger people, that this is not the first time this has happened, unfortunately. And until people know that it's a historic thing, they're looking at things in isolation. And therefore, I think it gives more power to people to have those debates and have those discussions and ask those questions. Well, um, I'm a lawyer, but I'm very sceptical of the law uh, in the way that you put it, you know, and I'm very sceptical that it, that it does um, uh, often bring justice. I mean, the famous recent example that did, but it, it was only totally down to the campaign, is the Hillsborough campaign. Um, and it, it's not... I'm not of the view that you can't do anything in the law. What we see in Orgreave is that over 90 miners were, were fitted up in a trial over riot, they were facing a life sentence, um, and these statements were just fitted around. Any any old officer could have arrested anyone, and the work was shown that that that, that it couldn't have happened in the way that is said, and the whole thing collapsed. And that's a very important case for everybody going forward, for every protester. You know, we we um, I mean, I was involved in the student cases and dealt with six violent disorder protests, and we we won. Uh, four of those and one on appeal. And it was very important in terms of pushing back that the police narrative is not the truth often. Um, and uh, and it, I think that affected the ability for, pe for, for the overuse of that, of that charge to some extent. You know, we can push back through the law as well. But I'm very much of the view that the, it has to be alongside campaigns or the campaigns are more important. You know, I'm not of the view that the law 
can 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 definitely bring justice for people because it is weighted, as you say. I'll just fill in on that. You mentioned Reclaim the Streets. They did win a legal case recently that says that they should never have been treated in that way. So it's, it, I agree with you that there's there's another way to approach this, and the people who carried on with the protests, you know, testimony to them, you know, that they they exposed that the law was completely wrong in the way it was being applied. But the Cramer Street's also won legally as well, so it can be both. Um, and the other, the other thing it's mentioned in the book is there is a, a senior judge who criticises the way that the Extinction Rebellion uh, appeals are being dealt with. So, so it's not one entity. You, you know, there, there are, there's the ability within that sometimes with proper representation and, and hard work, by, often by protesters, to push back the law, to change the law. It's it's not it's not a we don't live in a fascist state in that sense uh, and we can make some difference but I'm very much of the view that protests are the most important effective way to bring change and also you know after Orgreave and the the trials collapsed which actually interestingly as well is where the manual first came to light because um, Michael Mansfield the barrister asked questions and um, the the chief um, assistant chief constable. Clement said, well, we're working to a manual. So, you know, it, it, as a result of that trial collapsing, um, the police didn't use riot again for a while. So they didn't use riot as a charge at Wapping. Um, the Battle of the Beanfield, they also pushed back and got, um, you know, which was around uh, the travelling community um, at Stonehenge, and they were also attacked by the police. And they pushed back and got damages from the police. And, you know, so the, there was... There's a shift, as Matt says, you know, protest is very important in that regard, if, especially if you push back afterwards, if you like. I kind of want an opportunity for you to share some of the things that you uncover in the book, because there's just so much. I, it was almost like having a series of mini strokes, because every every like chapter I was like, <laughs> sorry, not again. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was it was like just so shocking and so continually shocking. Um, and I, I, I assume that you know, you, you talked about the documentary on which the book is based, and I, I assume you're kind of already familiar with a lot of the things that you wrote about in the book, but I'm just wondering whether in the course of writing the book there were things that shocked even you. Were there things that you were like, I can't believe this is true? A lot. I mean, there was a, there was a period of time during COVID when every time the phone rang or every time I phoned Matt, it was with kind of a new shocking reveal that, you know, we couldn't quite believe that government documents were telling us that or research was telling us that. Um, yeah, so we were, I think I've learned an incredible amount about yeah. protest and, and the state in writing this book. One of my fears when we started out on this book is it could have been very boring. You know, you could have, you could come to a protest and the police clamp down on it in a certain way. And what's fascinating is how they do it in different ways. And we didn't know that when we ventured out into this. But also there are there are things that definitely shocked us. I mean, the you you mentioned it briefly, but the relationship between um, a, a home secretary and a judge who ends up dropping the prosecution of some of police officers who were prosecuted after whopping one of the first times where it looked like finally there was going to be some accountability for police malpractice. Suddenly, there's a there's a as an application that has just been too much time to bring them to court, you know, a sort of application that if the defence run would, would never succeed and suddenly it's accepted. And that judge, we discovered, was, was a friend 
of, of the Home Secretary at the time who had been lent on by the police commissioner to drop the, drop the cases. That was absolutely riveting because it was building on knowledge that was out there but hadn't been complete. Uh, other people had seen stuff around it but we were able to see because he'd written a more recent book this judge, the forward was by the Home Secretary. So they think in the passage of time they're infallible. But actually what they've given us there is is evidence of the strong potential collaboration that, that, that could have led to the to the dropping of the, the one chance where it looked like the police were going to be held to accountable after whopping. And we could only piece that together in this way because of the documents that are beginning to be revealed in the National Archive, you know, and also through FOIAs and, and all that kind of stuff. And um, we were lucky, I think, in a couple of FOIs that stuff was sent to us that we weren't really expecting. Um, but also particularly the National Archive and the documents that are coming through now from that. And, you know, we're both pretty sure that there's lots of other stuff to come. You know, yes, we've managed to piece this together, but we're not in any way saying that we know everything because, at, you know, there's a, there's a number of files from Orgreave not been released yet. The, you know, there's new files coming through just because of dates and stuff. Um, but yes, I think I screamed once in the National Archive. Just <laughs> once. I mean, you didn't... I managed to keep the rest quiet. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm not meant to do that. It's a library. <laughs> the, you didn't mention that the case was against 36 police officers, I think it 26. was. Or 26. Okay, I mean, this point still stands. I mean, it's like a huge number of people who are just let off the hook in one go because their application was a bit late. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's quite incredible. And the fact that the magistrate, the Conservative Party candidate, who was also a magistrate and uh, had had said that, you know, insisted upon the independence of the judiciary from the executive, despite having the bloody former Home Secretary write the introduction to his book, the foreword. Like, what the heck? Like, how stupid do you have to be? Or, I suppose, think other people are. What you said earlier about this all coming out in the passage of time, though, I think is interesting. And you talked about waiting on documents to uh, be declassified or, um, yeah, released uh, to the National Archives. And, I mean, it, it seems like time is often used as a bit of a weapon um, by the police that, you know, maybe eventually you get justice 30 years later, maybe someone will write a book about you, you know, once the documents are released from the National Archives many decades after you've retired. Um, but does that not itself, you know, disperse and, and kind of, um, you know, dissipate the energy that might have created some momentum against what was happening at the time that, you know, it's, it's not really justice, you know, justice delayed is justice denied or whatever they say. Absolutely. That's what's going on now with this government, where they, they, this investigation into Partygate is taking forever. It wouldn't be the case where anybody else would not be treated like that. So they're trying to buy time to get away from the issue. But if you're on the... I mean, I deal with some miscarriage of justice cases. The delay is, is a constant problem. You know, it's a constant, well, this happened years ago, move on. There's been this appeal, you must be, it must be correct. It's, it's, it's it, you know, for all the ones that succeeded, the Birmingham Six, the Guildford Four, they're always weighed down by the previous appeal, found it was fine. And it's, a, it's an enormous battle. But for protesters, it, it, that, that's, I think, definitely in the book, for people who've come through the process, minors who came through all grief, there's just a sense of injustice because it's not properly recognised with the delay. 
And we're hoping to correct that a bit with the book, you know, to support these people. That's, that's the, one of the main reasons of writing the book, is to tell protesters' stories and what it felt like, what they were protesting about, and what it felt like to be on the, on the hard end of the you know, police force and, and, and what, it feels, what it still feels like for those people um, today. So there's a student who we quote at the end who they were, there were two brothers who, who, who uh, were not anti-police at all, you know, but now they cannot trust the police and their whole thing is that, is that these, it, for us to move forward, they have to be held to account. They can't move forward if police are not held to account. I guess there's also value in, you know, digging up this history at a time when people are in need of it and that it's not just going off into the void, but it's being read by people who maybe really do feel exhausted and burnt out and um, despondent at the amount of repression that they face from the police in their environmental activism, anti-racist activism, their abolitionist activism, um, and that, you know, it's it, it's kind of um, deferring that justice, but maybe also kind of um, passing it on to a to a new generation of activists who maybe who maybe kind of can utilize it and can and can kind of gain something or be encouraged um, by the the stories that you're sort of telling. The book is for someone who doesn't know any of this history. You know, lots of people who are protesting today don't know what's preceded it. And there are lots of echoes and things that, that could assist them as to what they're facing. Um, and it's also for people who were in those protests, because when we're able to look back, we can understand them a lot better. We can expose what went on much better. Um, I was, we were helped on the Criminal Justice Act demo. There's a FOI that's happened that has released a police report that was not for publication at the time because it talks about all the police failings. And now we can look back and look at that. We can understand what happened on that day properly. So for everyone who's there, they don't, under, they don't know what happened because the narrative is, is distorted. But now you can look back. But it's also for people who want to know about protests generally. So I think it's for those sort of three areas. I mean, isn't there an argument for focusing some of the kind of effort in political activism on things like national archiving and FOI, which help to expedite the process of justice being delivered and trying to kind of get some of those files disclosed quicker um, and more easily. I mean, like destroying FOI has been like uh, ambition of the government since at least Tony Blair. I think it was him who said it's like the biggest headache. The yeah, FOI Act is the biggest government headache there is yeah and i think the you know um the scottish government is also not brilliant on foi at all but the documents are many documents are released after 15 years okay so that allowed us to um look at the g8 and it really worries me that mps are using whatsapp and other informal communications because where is that going to be recorded and, you know, it, it, again, reduces the level of accountability and ability of, of anyone, particularly the left, to analyse what's been going on. One of the recurrent themes in the book is how much the, the government, the police, the judiciary and the media are at pains to stress on the, you know, the separation of powers. So Murdoch at the Leveson Inquiry 
saying that he hadn't used the son's influence to get favorable treatment. He literally says, I never asked the prime minister for anything, despite the fact he had literally asked Thatcher um, to supply police so that he could get his uh, papers out through the pickets at Wapping. Um, and, you know, he Thatcher wrote him a letter saying thanks for the roses after he went to visit her at Checkers. You know, like, this is madness. Um, I'd, I'd just like you to talk a bit about how the closure of ranks between these different bodies makes, you know, uh, makes impossible effectively <laughs> the ability of protesters to challenge what's going on um, or whether you think that that's the case. You know, is it possible to have a functioning democracy when the people in various branches of power in our society, the media, the judi judiciary, government, um, the police are often literally mates. Well, I think it's a bit like what Matt was saying before. It's about challenging the narrative. You know, that they've managed to get together and, and effectively from the minute a protest is over or even during the protest, as was the case of mopping, vilifying the protesters. And, you know, the worst example of that I think we have is of Orgreave where the footage was recorded um, by ITN and the BBC and the BBC switched the edit so it looked like the miners were attacking the police when in fact it was the other way around and you know and and that narrative is allowed to continue and i think there's a lot of people that hold responsibility for that um we're blessed in a way now with iPhones and movies and cam you know 24 hour rolling news which you wouldn't have had previously so um you know you'll be able to speak about, more about this in an evidential perspective Matt but but that is allowing I think a shift in the narrative particularly you know if we think about Bristol they came the the there was a, a report from the police saying that an officer had broken ribs he'd broken an arm etc and that was found later on not to be mm. so true yeah. um and and but also the way the protesters were being treated that you were able to counter that quite quickly after mm. Bristol, which I don't think we've seen before. Mm, and citizen journalism as well. You know, I've seen some really quite amazing examples of um, undercover police officers being identified using kind of the, com you know, uh, cross-examination of different um, photographs and, you know, people laying out in a in a Twitter thread like, you know, this guy is not who he claims to be. I think it was, maybe it was a BLM protest. I can't exactly remember. But um, yeah, I think there's there's um, kind of journalism from below um, that I think has also enabled the, that has, that has provided a bit of a check or a balance to um, some of the mainstream media outlets that might be more susceptible to, I suppose, like government influence or police influence or, um, yeah. Part of what the book does is is what you say. It brings together to show that the police didn't do this on their own, that they did it with other people that helped them. So the judiciary and the government and the civil service and the media in particular who, who dominate with their narrative. But it's, it's the, I've made the point I made earlier. It's not just in one... Uh, it's not a single entity that has no... Uh, has no friction within it. So, for instance, at the G20 protest, when Ian Tomlinson is, dies after he's pushed over by a police officer, it's The Guardian that exposed that, actually with some very, very good journalism, 
uh, and I know that, that Paul Lewis is involved, but I also know there was a, a film editor who researched it really carefully, independently, and found the movements, and they were able to put together the story of this um, homeless man who was uh, who the police had lied about. <laughs> that he'd just died somewhere else, but actually they were involved prior to his death in physically uh, manhandling him. Um, and so I, I think within that, it, it comes to your point, that there is a role, there's a role particularly for independent journalism. I mean, I, I come from a journalistic background where that was what I grew up with. That was the, My dad was on the Daily Mirror and you could he could expose things on the Daily Mirror. That's all been... Uh, made much, much weaker because of murder, kind of everything that's been done. But there is a role for independent journalism and with the good old mobile phone to expose what goes on on protests and to and to to fight back. It's not it's not just one entity that can never be de defeated in terms of what comes out of a protest. But it, I mean, but in the book, we have relied on some of that independent journalism you know if you think of Welling you think of Beanfield you know the, the, these were things that were published in mainstream media but it took a brave journalist and a brave editor and in, you know to do that and in some instances um, you know the the National Union of Journalists pushed back etc and said why are the police attacking the photographers as well unless they're wanting to hide something so they're yeah, I think it's reduced and I would love to see it come back. And I think that, you know, the role of independent journalism is probably stronger at the moment than than many mainstream, but it, it doesn't preclude pockets of, you know, people when a, a story is there um, that is counter to the national narrative, if you like. Besides being kind of obviously allied with an establishment, um, you know, Rupert Murdoch, for example, being in cahoots with Thatcher and what have you. Um, I wonder whether you sense a, a degree of naivety on the part of journalists um, who are covering protests. So for example, you know, the TV crews who attend the, the Warrington printer's strike um, and are there all day uh, until late at night when the police decide they're going to launch a big attack on the protesters to try and clear them. Um, and they tell the TV crews, to turn their lights off and they just do it. And I, it just strikes me that, you know, I don't see that as a someone giving commands from above Rupert Murdoch on the line, like telling them to, to, to obey, but just the TV crews who are literally often placed behind police lines at protests are, you know, somehow not entirely sure how to challenge police um, and, uh, you know, they're not kind of protesters and maybe they're not um, trained enough to, to have that kind of um, on the ground, um, like to, to kind of offer that pushback on the ground and assert their independence from the police. And maybe they themselves, you know, we know obviously that journalism is, and much more in the 1980s, I'm sure, was a very um, homogenous, you know, um, socioeconomically homogenous profession made up of a lot of white middle class, Oxbridge educated, privately educated people. And is that itself, does that, do you think, play into the kind of complicity um, of the um, of, of the journalistic profession with the police. It's regurgitation of police press releases, for example. Um, it's kind of, a, you know, obedience to police orders in the moment. Yeah, I think the best articles we found were from the journalists who were on the side, on who were in front of the police, not behind the police. You know, they are the people whose 
accounts married with what the miners have been saying, what the people at Welling have been saying for years, that this is my, this is the, the reality that we saw and this is the reality that's being reported. So, you know, and there's an, an academic called Len Masterman. He did a great account of, you know, when you're a journalist and you're behind the police, you feel like you're being attacked. So you've got the subliminal protesters are bad because that's what you're seeing. You're behind the police line. Um, you're not there with the protesters and understanding the issue. And, you know, with Murdoch, you know, journalism in the mainstream has been itself defunded. So people don't have the time to go into um, analyze more, understand the issues, work with protesters, speak to them, et cetera, et cetera. So it's easier in, in many ways to um, say, well, I'm taking the police line, I'm taking this. It doesn't excuse it. I don't like that that happens. Um, but that, I think, somehow helps people understand that, you know, journalism in many quarters needs to be better. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it comes back to what Murdoch did, you know, when, when he was trying to break, well, when he broke the unions at uh, Fleet Street, it, it had a knock-on effect to the quality of, of journalism and strength of journalism. And so the, the ability to uh, fight with your editor <laughs> over a protest, this is what happened, is much, much weaker, you know, because you haven't got the union behind you or whatever. And what what some... Um, the, the chapter on, on, on whopping shows is that before before Murdoch came along and did that, there was union power within within the quality of the press. So if something was going out that was just perverse, um, such as uh, Scargill doing a, a Zeke Kyle, which he obviously wasn't doing, they would say we're not printing it. Yeah, we'd go out literally like it. a black square. We went out with a you blank square. That example, yeah. And that so what what he did undoubtedly um, led to a massive decline. And, and we also see, unfortunately, local journalism. And my brother, my younger brother's a local journalist in Camden New Journal. They do a great job. But there's so much less of that around because there isn't the money. And, and uh, so, but there are pockets of people doing great stuff, you know, and, and that's what we need to resurrect and we need to hold on to. It's not that we can't do anything. Otherwise, we could all go give up and go home. And as I say, the story of of the G20 protests was exposed and the police were then put right on the defensive and there were all sorts of inquiries that put them on the defensive about the use of kettling, etc., because of good journalism. So it's not like we can't do anything, uh, but it's just so much harder because of what Murdoch achieved. And even the narrative about the, the printers of the 80s was that they're bad, they're stopping the newspapers, they're too much power, etc., etc., but you speak to those printers and, you know, with the example that Matt just gave, they say that they were standing up for truth and honesty and, um, you know, not fake news. Um, they wanted the truth in the newspapers and therefore they would stop it when they knew that it wasn't true. So, you know, and that, again, comes from the power of being in a trade union and having someone stand with you in order to do that it's very difficult to do that on your own you'll be sampled on our latest fundraiser <laughs> support independent journalism um, of course thanks for that indirect plug um, <laughs> well so one thing I wanted to talk about which we've touched on a little bit um, is something you're quite clear on in the book is that 
the police enjoy cross-party support. And in fact, you know, Tony Blair, you suggest, was among the most carceral prime ministers uh, in British history. He had uh, he had created a new criminal offence every single day he was in office. 3,000 new criminal offences by the time he left Downing Street. Um, but what's interesting, you know, is that it's not just the Labour right, which has this record of being really pro-police and something that is often kind of uh, recalled um, is that Corbyn um, pledged to put an additional 10,000 police officers on the on the streets. Um, and, I, and I'm interested in why you think that, you know, we have this inability, even on the kind of supposed parliamentary left, to articulate opposition to the police, even when, you know, they so clearly defend the interests of capital. You give so many examples of this in your book, but there's one that really strikes me, um, which is when the police at the Warrington Messenger printer strike wouldn't let an ambulance through to treat the protesters, but they would let Eddie Shaw, the editor of the Warrington Messengers, armoured Land Rover through to carry printing plates into the factory. So, you know, this is so obviously an institution which is not in the interest of workers and is in the interest of bosses. One might excuse this uh, in Keir Starmer, who to all intents and purposes is, you know, a Tony Blair acolyte. Um, but in someone like Jeremy Corbyn, it seems really hard to explain. Um, but perhaps not. And I'd like to hear from you why um, you think that you know, it is so hard for any politician really seemingly to articulate a full-throated opposition um, to the Institute of Policing as it currently exists or as it might ever exist. Well, I think the, I mean, the specifics of Corbyn were, were to do with electoralism without doubt and with the, within the weakness he had within his parliamentary party um, to how far he could go. But, uh, I mean, I'm... Uh, I would say that in the recent stuff to do with Child Q, um, you do have very important people who do come forward. Diane Abbott has been exceptional in what she's done in Hackney to say that the, off that the people involved need to be sacked and we need to mark this. this how has this happened? And so I, I think it's um, important we make those, uh, we unite with those people when we can because they can make a massive difference to a campaign they can make it much stronger but I agree that when it comes to the manifesto of a, of a parliamentary Labour Party it's unlikely to say that we need to abolish the police to, 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 well to, to say what it needs to say about the police yeah. in terms of their history and is that because um, there's a perception that policing is somehow integral to and you know British identity in some way, that it's not a political issue that you can really argue the toss on. It's just something that you have to get behind in order to to, to, to seem like you're, I mean, as Keir Starmer would probably say, sort of patriotic. Uh, I think it's um, always been there. There's always been a connection with, with, with Labour and the police. And I mean, this is my view, it's not probably a shared view, but um, I think um, if you are seeking um, election then they will not have the confidence to go beyond that. That's the problem. Imagine. What I would say just on the on the Starmer story, which just comes out rather subtly in the book because he was involved in different parts of these stories, 
um, is that he moves from the left to the right quite clearly within this book. At the times that he's criticising whether we really need a police is what he says at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book. He's, he's definitely not saying that. So it, it, people's journeys can be shown through that. But I think in terms of Corbyn and his his role in the in the criminal justice act protest was 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 a very good one saying that the police had had um, behaved appallingly on that day essentially is the quote i can't remember the exact quote and and that's now proven by their own report which has now come out because of the foi and i think often unless you're in contact with the police or unless you're in protest you know you you also see the police differently. You see them as someone there to protect you, etc. You know, we've got an example in the G8 of that, but, you know, she wasn't an isolated person saying, well, I used to think the police were there to protect me and look after me, and then I went on a protest and I found it was different. So I think, you know, the, a, a lot of the population will think that. So electorally, I agree with you. Personally, I'm, I'm, I'm always sceptical of growing up in left-wing family and sceptical police, but I didn't, mm. I didn't really know what they were about until I went to Wapping, and I was there the night where a lot happened, and it was absolutely terrifying. So it's the experience, exactly as Morak says, experience of people actually, when they're confronted with police horses or whatever, that can change your mind like that, because you suddenly have a completely different perception to everything you've been taught at school and from growing up about what the police are about. There's been some really heinous kind of behaviour from um, media, like the reordering of the Orgreave footage by the BBC. But, you know, there were also were lots of camera crews at Orgreave. There were lots of camera crews in Warrington and um, in, in many, of the, uh, many of the protests that you talk about, photographers and, you know, all sorts of journalism um, and reporting was going on um, and I presume being conveyed into newspapers. And so I'm wondering, like, why didn't any of it stick? Why did people not watch the news or read the newspaper and, and, and like, you know, realise at that moment, is it that first-hand experience is somehow a necessary element or that the theatre of police brutality is kind of entertaining from a distance, but it's only when you're being trampled by a police horse that it starts to become a kind of a nightmare. But a lot of the photojournalists, particularly from Wapping, their photos are only coming out now. You know, they they had the photos, they have them in their archives, but... Um, you know, I've used in my work 30 or 40 photos from one photographer alone. He couldn't get them published in the UK during whopping, possibly because the rest of Fleet Street was behind, secretly or otherwise, what Murdoch was doing. Um, you know, I've seen photographs of ITN crews being attacked. You know, we mentioned in the book that there was a Russian camera crew. They complained of being attacked. Um, the police apparently shone spotlights onto on you know into the cameras so the things couldn't be recorded so yes there was a lot of people there but um i think you know working together there was a lot not published at the time again that's another reason why we can do this now yeah i mean the, the feeling after a protest that turns violent is very powerful on behalf of the police you know that the, the government narrative the police narrative the media narrative it's very difficult to confront that so, I mean, in the Welling chapter, there's one journalist who tells what actually happened at, at Welling. He's the only journalist. And they try who's, to who's, him. <laughs> who's, tell, you know, in the New Statesman, exactly what happened. And everybody else is from police to the police, behind the police lines, as Morag says. 
um, the, the pressure to go along with that narrative is enormous and editorial control is massive. So we've had stories from people we've spoken to who even on the you know, decent papers had their copy changed that ameliorated, that softened what they saw of the police by the time it got gone out. It's not what they actually saw was what goes out in some of the better papers because the pressure is, well, there must have been violence by the thing or there must have been this, must have been that. They really do operate in a very concerted way and it's very difficult to overcome that. To revisit the place where we sort of began with the Kill the Bill movement, obviously the, there is a long history of its own of resistance to... Um, British policing, um, some of which Adam Elliott Cooper has covered in his brilliant recent book, um, which I think is called Black Resistance to British Policing. Um, but I'm wondering why you think this has proven a particular moment for kind of renewed resistance to, to, to the police. And one thing which I think is kind of interesting to me is that there seems to be an echo or a sort of mirroring where the... Um, the secrecy of the manual um, and the inability to protest a manual and tactics that you don't know exist is kind of inverted with the PCSC bill, where the government has just come out with it and said, this is all the stuff that we're going to allow the police to do. We're going to allow them to criminalize people who lock on. We're going to allow them to criminalize noisy or disruptive protests or annoying protests. We're going to, you know, criminalize all sorts of behaviors that are just written there in black and white in the parliamentary record. And there's a kind of transparency to it and a blatant you know quality to it that is like entirely um opposite to the secrecy of the manual and um sort of opened opened the government up to pushback little did they know obviously that at the same time a serving metropolitan police officer would kidnap rape and murder a young woman and that that kind of created this maelstrom but um is there something in the kind of conditions um for example the transparency of the bill or you know other conditions that made that moment in march 2021 sort of ripe for this new anti-policing movement i don't think you can predict when something will happen you know when we started writing this book there hadn't been as i say there hadn't been a big protest for a long time um i think you can predict that something will happen but you can't predict when. And the George Floyd thing, nobody could have predicted that another black man being killed by the police in America would lead to such a worldwide response. And it was absolutely wonderful, even in COVID, you know, just masses of people coming out. So I think it's unpredictable how this has happened. What is extraordinary is we have a Home Secretary who is intent on giving police enormous powers at a time when the police are, are being exposed from doing appalling things. I mean, almost every week, you know, photographing dead people and, uh, you, you know, the case of um, cousins and all, the, all, of these, all of these cases that are happening, all the, all the racism that's coming out of the WhatsApp and the, and the misogyny. Um, it's extraordinary that she just tries to carry on relentless, but even she has had to be reined in and pretend that she's taking it seriously. So she's not had it all her own way, and so that's what gives me confidence, is that we can stop her. Very difficult with an opposition that initially were going to abstain on the bill and have not done nearly enough, but it doesn't make it impossible, and we have to unite more strongly, I think, with unions as well. And, and, you know, I think everyone has a responsibility to try and unite more and uh, put our differences to one side sometimes with, 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 in order to, to 
bring people together to show what's going on and tell more people about this because I think campaign's been good but I think it could be bigger. I mean there were 200,000 people on the protest against the Criminal Justice Act in 1994 and we haven't reached that level in, the, in these recent protests. There's been some great local things and we need to work harder for for the because they're going to try again with more powers. You know, have have curtailed it a little bit, I think, haven't they? But, um, you know, the stuff that happened in the Lords would not have happened without the campaign, without a doubt. I think the, you know, the bill, from my understanding, is coming from the perspective of protesters are bad. They're still, the government is saying protesters are still bad, which is, you know, not, that doesn't counter what the police do it just the bill sets out well the police have got increasing powers but it doesn't address the public use of dogs it doesn't address the public use of horses or vans or or whatever else those powers are still secret um to all intents and purposes we've got the procedure that they're meant to go through before they use horses but how they use horses how they use dogs how they use vans against protesters is still um, secret has still never gone through Parliament, mm. and yet they're pushing these more, even more draconian powers, despite all the, the goings on, that the police and the government knew. We might not have known, but they knew. Mm. Your, I mean, your title in the book makes quite pointed use of the word try. <laughs> um, how the police try to suppress protest. Um, I mean, what you were just saying now, Matt, is basically that they've been relatively effective, maybe, in that fewer and fewer people are turning out to um, big protests, despite increasing levels of repression. But I, I wonder whether you think that that's true and whether the, you know, the repeated pushback that protesters get um, has been effective at chilling um protest um, or whether it's kind of operated and or whether it's operated as this kind of meta kettling where containment leads to resistance you know this is also the title of the book charged and you know whether the the you know police suppression of protest has charged the political atmosphere um to the point where things will kind of explode yeah i think both i think that's a very good question i think the um kettling undoubtedly has put some people off protesters, uh, protesting. You know, if you go and stand in a kettle for seven hours in the cold, you're unlikely to want to come back again. And that's part of the reason why they do it. You know, they pretend it's about safety and, you know, making people bored and stuff. But why, why should people be bored for f seven hours when they've come out to protest against tuition fees or whatever? It's a way of don't come back. You know? So undoubtedly that has some effect. But I, I don't, if I've given the impression that I think things have got, uh, that they've been successful. I don't, I don't think that. I'm sorry if I gave that impression. I actually don't think that at all. I'm absolutely uh, jubilant about the Black Lives Matter and the, you know, the size of these things is absolutely wonderful. Um, and the, without doubt, we, what the Extinction Rebellion has achieved is to put the issue firmly at the top of the agenda of what of, that we're in we're in crisis with, with the climate and that's not going away so all of that stuff is very effective what what, what i do think within that is how we organize and that we can be more effective if we if we pull together more and co have more coalition type things that make the coalition stronger is my view on some of this stuff but i don't think they've got rid of protest at all far from it so it's a contradictory thing where they are effective but they can't stop it um, and ongoing protest 
it, it's clear at times that, that people are going to have to, to be effective. They're going to have to break the law. I mean, that's unlikely, you know, that's what's happened always for, with the suffragettes and people getting the vote and all that sort of stuff. People have had to had to breach the law in order to, to win what they need. But um, they can't stop that, that uh, ambition over issues that need to be fought for. Totally agree with that. And I mean, the irony is, you know, our current government and opposition, they laud the suffragettes. They were, you know, they were amazing. But in their in their day, you know, Extinction Rebellion are the suffragettes of today to me. And that, that's it's quite fascinating that the narrative has changed over 100 years. So suffragettes are now good. Well, a thousand suffragettes went to prison. People just don't know that. They just think it's all um, peaceful protest. It was actually people um, having to take militant action to win to win that to win that issue. I thought I was going to end there, but there is just something on my mind which is uh, about violence. Um, and we often talk about peaceful protesters as being the kind of gold standard of protester. And if you're a peaceful protester, then I'll defend your rights in The Guardian and New Statesman. But if you throw a, you know, whatever it is, <laughs> whatever you throw, if you throw anything at a police officer, you're now a hooligan and I can't defend you like many leftists take this line and I, I just kind of wonder whether we have you know from reading the book there are so many ways in which violence is visible police make violence very visible obviously hitting someone over the head with a truncheon is violence but as you said standing and preventing them from leaving a kettle is violence so are many of the things that the protesters were protesting against you know the reduction of wages or poor working conditions or you know mass redundancies or whatever it is racism um these are not physically violent acts but they are a form of violence that one that you know the people have only physical violence with which to respond you know a riot is the language of the unheard etc etc and i just wonder whether we sometimes get a we impoverish our own discourse about protests when we fixate too much on non-violence as uh, somehow a higher form of protest. And we refuse to kind of reckon with the everyday violences embedded in our society that are less dramatic than someone throwing a brick at a police officer. I mean, I think there's a history of, of very important protest that has been violent. So, I mean, I'll give the example of Cable Street, yeah. You've got fascists coming into uh, a Jewish area to intimidate them. And people fought back and said, this is not going to happen. The police tried to facilitate that, and the local community said, it's not going to happen. They, they stopped it happening. You can't do that by just asking the police because they're doing the wrong thing. Now we would celebrate Cable Street, that, the, that a, a Jewish community has been protected by the community itself, by unions and Communist Party at the time and stuff. And I, I represented um, some people in Rotherham who had exactly the same experience on a smaller scale where fascists had come into their community to intimidate them and throw things at them and they fought back and they were charged and they were all acquitted by an all-white jury. So it's very important to look at context, I think, always. And that's what we've tried to do in the book is that the violent, people don't go along to a protest generally to, just, to, just to have violence. You know, that's the way that the right would portray it. 
it comes out of a context where people are resisting, some, usually policing that's mm -hmm. excessive that shouldn't be happening. Mm -hmm. And that's the forensic look in time, looking at, the say, at the last big altercation, the student protest, when you look at that forensically, the violence starts with the police yeah. and how they police that protest and how they, and how they then covered up and, and didn't admit what they did that was wrong mm -hmm. uh, to send everybody back to the back of the square and then people went to the back of the square and then they're kettled and then the horses are charged in. That's what happened on that protest. They keep And, and so people are, are resisting <laughs> excessive violence uh, and we have to defend them in that. Um, uh, and that and, but you have to look at it forensically. And again, to going it. back to Orgreave, the majority of miners were in T-shirts and shorts. Yeah. They weren't there to have a fight. Yeah. You know, they were there to to stand and protest. And, you know, I, I find it quite interesting that, you know, peaceful protest. Well, often, particularly those in the book, the protesters were peaceful until the police decided to take alternative action. So, But then the narrative over the last 40 years has become protesters are violent as a general rule. Um, and indeed, I, can't, I don't think it's in the book, but one of the very early um, documents from the National Archive has the government saying if people from the left come along then there will be violence. So it's ingrained in the in the police and the Home Office that protesters are violent when it's not necessarily the case, but that's the, become the narrative over the last 40 years, pretty much for all the reasons that are in the book and all the exposés that are in the book. That narrative can, I think, be countered. It's, we're not violent protesters, but we're responding to violence. And I just, one last point, that there's nothing more violent than what the police have done by having sexual relations with protesters who are environmentalists and all that. I can't imagine anything more perverse and more violent than that. The spy cops that you're referring to there, yeah, which is, yeah, something that I covered on my last episode of Navarra FM, also about policing. I only have one special subject. <laughs> um, thank you very much for allowing me to indulge it. Um, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, yeah, very thank you so thank much you. for joining us today. It's been a really interesting conversation. Thanks, everyone, uh, for listening to this episode of Novara FM. I hope you learned as much from that conversation as I did. And for those of you hungry for more, you can read Charged, How the Police Try to Suppress Protest, when it's published by Verso uh, in May. Regular listeners to Navarra FM and readers of NavarraMedia.com will have begun to spot a theme in my work. And if you have a story about the police that you'd like to tell me or a tip that you'd like to share, you can email me at rivka at navaramedia.com. In the 1970s, the provisional IRA was in the early days of its armed campaign to end British rule on the island of Ireland. In the United States, a small group of activists began organizing on their behalf. They called themselves the Irish Northern Aid Committee, NORAID, and they were looking for a fight. War is always violence, and if that's the only way, and history tells us it's the only way to get freedom, then it must be war. My name is Nate Levy, and I'm the host of Foreign Agent, a podcast about the connection between ordinary Irish Americans and a revolutionary socialist guerrilla group. It was a tenuous and unlikely coalition, but it shaped the troubles in Northern Ireland and helped to mold contemporary Irish-American identity. This is a story that travels back and forth across the Atlantic, over three decades of conflict. And in six episodes, Foreign Agent will explore how regular Americans became militant advocates for the cause of Irish freedom. 
whether they have dust on their knees from coming from mass or not. They're trying to acquire Uzi machine guns and surface-to-air missiles to shoot down helicopters. We'll hear directly from some of the people who provided military and financial support to the Irish Republican Army. We'll follow the guns and the money from South Boston and the Bronx. And we'll also meet people who wrote letters, walked the picket lines, and built Irish Northern Aid into a nationwide organization. Somebody would drive a flatbed truck down into Manhattan. We would be announcing the demonstration in and out through the Bronx before coming down to outside the British consulate. We had thousands of people out at those demonstrations. And we'll see that at every step of the way, the U.S. government tried to shut them down. We will do everything we possibly can to prevent American citizens' assistance to the terrorists in Ireland. We'll meet the teetotaler and life insurance actuary who was the public face of Irish Northern Aid. We'll spend time with the communist armored truck driver who ran thousands of guns out of his small apartment in Brooklyn. And we'll tell the wild court case that made them into heroes of the Irish Republican movement. An eight-week-long gun smuggling trial in New York's Brooklyn federal court went to the jury today. The question to be answered, were the defendants working for the IRA or the CIA? It is not often that one has the opportunity to kick the shit out of the CIA, the FBI, the State Department, MI5, and MI6, all at one time. We had it, and we did it. Irish Northern Aid fused support for an anti-colonial struggle with white American identity politics. And throughout it all, they kept a coalition of left and right-wing tendencies together by orienting their work around the principle of armed struggle. They took militant Irish nationalism from the bars in the Bronx into the highest reaches of the American state. And for almost three decades, Norid went punch for punch with the British, Irish, and U.S. governments. And they left their mark on the peace agreement that ended the war. Irish America changed U.S. foreign policy. Irish America changed British policy. This is the story of the Troubles, as seen through American eyes. Foreign Agent from Navarra Media is available wherever you get your podcasts.